Welcome back to Past Prime, where middle-aged men assess the music of middle-aged men. I'm Maddie Wishdown, and I'm joined today by my equally middle-aged friend, Steve Collins. Steve, the album we're talking about today is Tin Machine 2. <laughs> and this is a podcast wherein I am going to position you as the SME, as we say in business speak. Do you know what an SME is, Steve? No, no, I, I was never... Uh much for business <laughs> yeah uh, an sme is a subject matter expert oh a, oh. a SME. you're a SME. a SME. excellent uh you're a tin machine SME because in the summer of 1991 when you and i first met yeah you brought like a padded portable cassette case to poetry camp in vermont yeah right yeah and my recollection of that case was some tall a lot of Genesis and Peter Gabriel. Yeah. <laughs> but most, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're shrinking with humiliation. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but a lot of David Bowie. Is that recollection accurate? Yeah, that would be accurate. <laughs> and so I think of you as a Bowie guy. And I remember you having a kind of precocious perspective on Tin Machine. Like, on the one hand, you knew that there was something rotten in Denmark. Yeah. On the other hand, I, f I feel like you were curious about what was motivating Bowie to do this. And I, I found that to be interesting. I, I think you had a, a little bit of 17-year-old wisdom about Bowie that I didn't have. Um, oh, that's generous. That's generous of you. Do you still, or do you still have a Bowie attachment? Uh, I don't, uh, yeah, I still have a Bowie attachment. Uh, I'm not, uh, not as into him as I was then. Um, I was certainly Tin Machine curious. I owned both the Tin Machine, the, the original Tin Machine album and the mm -hmm. sequel. And mm -hmm. that's something that already puts me in a very small group <laughs> yeah. uh, of, of people who actually invested in this uh, project. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I I definitely was all in on the first album, and like many people, drifted off uh, the Tin Machine wagon on the second album. Yes, and and for those of our listeners who are like, who the hell is Tin Machine, and what does it have to do with David Bowie? Can you just give the, you know, the 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 log line description of who who were Tin Machine? Sure. After his uh, Bowie's uh, commercial peak with Let's Dance, he had a rather steep decline. Uh, the next two albums, uh, Tonight and uh, Never Let Me Down, really uh, dropped off uh, in terms of quality. And he found himself kind of creatively bankrupt. He decided to uh, form a band and get his creative juices going again and do a little chameleon shift. Uh, and it was very much designed as a band as opposed to a Bowie solo project with, uh, you know, new players. They were all contributing to the songs. It was a band of which he was one but one member. And this band uh, was uh, Tony Sales and Hunt Sales, who are brothers and uh, the son of uh, Soupy Sales. And... <laughs> the guitarist, the lead guitarist, uh, Reeves Gabriels, uh, who's a real squawking uh, kind of wild uh, guitar player. 
Uh, and uh, they uh, formed this band Tin Machine. And it's a very guitar forward, you know, real crunchy hard rock album. Yes, alternative hard rock album. Yeah. The guitar is sort of a uh, post Robert Fripp, Bob Quine kind of sound, yes. right? Yes, yeah. yes. And you, uh, you could say that they uh, predicted grunge. You could. People have said that since in the reappraisals. Yeah. And yes, Bowie committed to this act. I think everyone was rolling their eyes saying, come on, the idea of David Bowie being one fourth of a band of equals, you know, not buying it. The idea that David Bowie wasn't really, really the front man, not buying it. But for the better part of three years, he committed to it. He stuck with it. Yes, he did. He did. And uh, they, they looked slick. Uh, they have the cover of the first Tin Machine album. They're all in these black suits on a white background. They look kind of cool. I, I sort of, I bought it. Yeah. So that, so yes, what are your first blush clearings about Tin Machine that, that you, that you bought the act back then? Yeah. And I, that I feel a strange <laughs> mixture of pride and shame, uh, as someone who really raced to the record store to buy Tin Machine 2. Uh, like first in line. It turned out there wasn't a line, <laughs> but I was first uh, right. when it was released. Yeah, I yeah. was there. Yeah, I feel a little bit of embarrassment because I really never listened to the albums. Candidly, in part because I think you, I thought that you had done the work <laughs> and that that absolved me of, of the need to do it. I, and I was able to, with a clear conscience, refer to them as shit machine because I thought that you had exhausted it and come out the other side saying these, you know, maybe this Bowie thing isn't so good. But then, you know, years later, you know, there have been suggestions, as you alluded, that maybe a Tin Machine wasn't that bad. Maybe they were presaging the music that came after them. And it's David Bowie. And with David Bowie's passing, I felt like I couldn't, call them shit machine with a clear conscience. So glibly, yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate you coming back and doing the work. Yeah. Well, in the same way that I don't feel like I ever really need to listen to Meatloaf or to Early Genesis because you've done the work. And I think on some level you <laughs> feel like you don't need to listen to any indie rock released after 1992 because I've done the work. These yeah. are sort of the it's the symbiosis of, of friendship. Uh, yes. And of, collaboration. Of teenage friends finding their own identity, right? Yeah. Forging yeah. their own path, knowing that the other path is, is well tended. The other yeah. garden is tended to. And that I would let you know if there was something important that you had to, to check out. Yes. And yeah. vice versa. And that well. we would still ignore it. Largely. Yes. Yeah. Largely. Yeah. <laughs> Then I'm not okay. going to listen to uh, Tom Verlaine's uh, seventh solo album. Yes. Uh, no matter what you say about it. Yeah. Uh, uh, the seventh one, I think, was either Warm Flashlight. And cool. yeah. No, no, it, was, it, it might have actually, it might have been, or it could have been The Wonder, in which case you don't have to listen to okay. The Wonder. It's okay. Okay. The album, so the basic facts of the album we are talking about, we are not talking about the monumental debut. We are talking about the second and final Tin Machine studio album, simply titled Tin Machine 2, released in 1991. 
It reached number 126 on the American album charts. It did have two singles that charted on the rock and roll charts, Baby Universal and One Shot. And it was produced by Tin Machine, Tim Palmer, and drumroll please, Hugh Padham, mm. the, the patron saint of past prime producers, it seems like. He's, just, uh, he's here again and again, this guy. Yeah, yeah, he is. And a little bit of a spoiler, although Hunt Sales is the outlier in the band, you know, whereas three quarters of Tin Machine was dressed by David Bowie wearing like slick late 80s Armani's double-breasted day-glow suits and like Tommy Bahama shirts and <laughs> candidly looking better than they should, Hunt Sales, the drummer who was <laughs> suffering through pretty horrible drug addiction, he liked to walk around in his underwear a lot. Did you notice that? I did not know that. Uh, yeah. I did not have much of a, aside from the album cover, I didn't have much of a visual on them. Yes. In the videos, there's one thing that doesn't, that's different from the other things. <laughs> and, and it's the cocaine-addled, uh, diaper-wearing drummer. <laughs> now, the reason Excellent. why I bring it up is because Hunt Sales is the obvious outlier and the butt of jokes on the other hand i think the drums in tim machine sound amazing it's actually like my favorite part of the album i have no idea how much of that has to do with hunt sales versus hugh padham and that gated mm -hmm. reverb thing yeah he's got a lot of ferocity padham or, or sales sales yeah a bit of an animal yeah yeah very much animal. he's very <laughs> yeah. much animal yeah yeah so padham's <laughs> back for more past prime work when you think about Tin Machine now in middle age, what do you think about? <laughs> is this a Rorschach test? It is. It always is. A, this is all a Rorschach test. It's this all Rorschach. Yeah, it's a Rorschach test. When I think of it, I mean, I said it. I mean, I think of those. Uh, I think of those suits, and I think for you know, really falling for it. I think there was a big campaign. They came on Saturday Night Live. Uh, I stayed up and saw that. Um, I was all in from, like, I followed the campaign. The look, the, uh, the first uh, sort of uh, national presentation of them, it wowed me. I was all in. Yes. And you've been on the record as saying that you do not abide by the calling of ship machine. No. And you find that offensive. I do. I think it's a little I think it's a little much. I think if you listen to that first album, it's uh, I mean, I'm I'm somewhere in the middle. I don't really like it, but mm -hmm. but I think it's uh, and certainly if you compare it to uh, a lot of other I mean, there are a lot of Bowie albums that are kind of not quite there. He sort of throws a lot at the wall uh, and keeps moving. And uh, until he eventually gets the right combination uh, of stuff to hit, he's a very prolific guy who just keeps working. And there are some things that work in this and some things that don't. It's not an album that I ever return to, uh, but I don't think I don't think it's shit machine any more than like Diamond Dogs is shit Bowie or something, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you and coming after tonight and never let you down. Yeah, it's better. <laughs> you, okay, uh, it is listen, better. It's definitely better. I think it's a step forward. Yes. Do you know what I mean? I don't. Yes. I, I don't. I don't particularly like Tin Machine 
but I don't particularly like those albums either. But I do think this is way more of a step forward. And you, you described, we talked about the look of the band. They were immaculate in these suits. It definitely yeah. had the feel of daddy frontman David Bowie, who was claiming not to be the dad or the frontman functioning as the stylist for the rest of the band, right? These, yes. He was giving them tailored suits that they would not have owned otherwise. Right, which I guess apparently Hunt was not wearing, but yes. <laughs> I think Hunt would put them on and then proceed take, to take them off. Right. As, right, as, the, <laughs> as the day would, as the day as would evolve. Progress. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, so I remember the suits. I remember them appearing on Saturday Night Live and thinking that it was fairly terrible noise and that I just wanted <laughs> David Bowie to sing David Bowie's songs. Yeah. I, I think David and Reeves both played those headless guitars, right? Yeah, there's, a he yeah, there's headless guitars, yeah. <laughs> Do we know what the benefit of those guitars is? Yeah, I'm not sure. That's why it might help to have someone who knew something about music on this <laughs> podcast. I, I'm working under the assumption that they're simply lighter weight. That they're just like, you can maneuver more easily. <laughs> Has that been a problem? People have complained about guitars being heavy? Yeah, well... Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Maybe Joe Walsh's double guitar... Was heavy, yeah. Who did we talk about recently that had like a guitar and bass, a, a two-headed guitar and bass? Mike recently? Rutherford. Yeah, Mike Rutherford. <laughs> yeah. Right, if you, right, if you're having to be the bassist and the guitarist, it might... Cause back problems. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a heavy burden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But I remember Tin... I guess what I'm saying is I remember Tin Machine as a stylized, awkward failure. Uh, it is... It's coming out of a real creative nadir. Yes. Bowie's separated from... He's divorced from Angie, but he's not yet met Iman. I think he meets Iman right around the time of this album, right? Yep, and they get married uh, when he returns to his solo career. Right, Iman breaks up Shit Machine. Yeah, yeah. she's the Yoko owner oh, of Shit Machine. machine. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, Tin Machine, rather. Yes, so that's I, so candidly, I did not remember very much about this album because you had done the work. I did return to both albums and the music that Bowie made before and after. And I, I had an unpopular thesis for this, the essay that I wrote that inspired this podcast. And I, I want to share it with you because you Please. are the Bowie, you're the Bowie file. Yeah. So my thesis was basically that the prevailing narrative about David Bowie is that he is a creative chameleon and innovator, you know, par excellence, like that, that he is the, the greatest, maybe alongside Dylan uh, and maybe Madonna of all rock and roll chameleons. Mm-hmm. However, I was positing that there's a very fine line between a chameleon who uh, shapeshifts in relation to their environment and a parasite who is feeding off their environment, where their environment is really a, a living host. And that Bowie was maybe more so a vampire than he was a chameleon. If you look at the history of his, if you look at his career, wherein his relationship with uh, Eno and Lou Reed and Iggy Pop, and, and then you have Nile Rodgers, and, and then eventually even like Iman and Trent Reznor. There's a whole history of, of artists for whom the relationship, the, 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 there's a fine line between chameleon, mentor, protege, and vampire. 
And I was positing that around this time, Bowie basically didn't have a host. You know, his, his relationship with Niles Rogers was done. Mm-hmm. And those last two albums, he was flailing because he didn't have anything to suck from. And that he, he just needed to have a guy. And the guy he found was this Staten Island session man, Reeves Gabriels. Mm-hmm. And he chose a guy who played a little bit like Robert Fripp yeah. and uh, really chose perhaps the wrong host for, yeah. the, you know, for the next step of his career. Bowie as vampire versus chameleon. What do you think? I know I you you'd think I would be uh, offended, uh, but I'm I'm not. I think that's an okay theory. Uh, I mean, I think you could more charitably put him as a uh, like a curator. You know, uh, that would be more charitable than a than a vampire. But I definitely looking over Bowie. Like Bowie's someone that I don't listen to anymore. You know. And I haven't found in when you look across his albums and all that work I did listening to every album, they're exhausting, some of them. And it's very uh, and there's a lot of kind of nonsense ideas and dead ends and and everything. And I do think he's a very restless collaborator. Uh, He's very dependent on collaborations. Uh, And I don't know if. I think that that point from your uh, from your thesis is very valid. And uh, whether that, you know, you can be a artist who just collaborates and that's part of your thing and your gift or whether that makes you a vampire and less than I I don't know. I think I think my unsympathetic view was in part inspired by his relationship with Mick Ronson. Yeah. which seemed a little bit inequitable that Ronson's contributions were oversized and underappreciated yeah. or underrecognized. Yeah. But then also, to your point, looking at his finest albums, which I think were the product of very close collaborations with people who were, you know, artistically singular. I, I think it's valid to be a little suspicious of how much uh, Bowie needs these collaborators. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that you know, I mean, I guess the is there something at the center? You know, he's right. this um, he seems to fly highest when he obscures himself in these kind of alien personas and masks and, you know, all of that. I mean, he does have a lot of, uh, you know, nonsense uh, music and he does seem to he does seem to really be after so after being on the edge of the trend, you know, that it's a little maybe even suspicious, like, you know, his his restlessness seems like maybe trend following. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, r- rather than, uh, you know, but I, I don't know. I don't know. I, all I know is that I haven't found go. You know, I think he's got a lot of highlights and I, I tend to like the more populous stuff that. um that he did, you know, things like Under Pressure and Heroes and uh, the song. And but I do, you know, still the his peak collaborations there with Eno, I still find really interesting. But they're both they sort of alternate between like they kind of come together and then noodling. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, so it, it's like even in his. Yeah, it's, it's he's a kind of hit or miss kind of guy. 
Well, how much did you listen to the later albums, the, the last two, The Next Day and Black Star? Not a lot. Uh, uh, just a little bit. I, they didn't really grab me. Well, that was sort of my point. I know, obviously, you know, Black Star's released at the time of his death, but yeah. I found it to be incredibly, ex- almost excruciatingly boring. Yeah. And I don't know, and I, I feel terrible saying that, you know, that to have the album sort of at this point is like a, like a eulogy. It's like untouchable. Yeah. But it, it, to me, it, if that was like Bowie, a man alone, it's just not as interesting to me as his collaborations. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, they, they didn't spark anything in me, those two albums. Yeah, your 17-year-old cassette-carrying self yeah. is... Uh, very disappointed. Yeah, yeah, feels very, very betrayed, yeah. But you know who does not feel betrayed? The, the Ryko Disc Corporation. For <laughs> no, whom, they don't. <laughs> for whom you spent yeah, hundreds spent of dollars. Hundreds of dollars on the whole oeuvre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, uh, let's get into two. We've already walked up to uh, the tape cassette itself. Why don't you tell our audience what the cover of Tin Machine 2 looks like? Well, my memory is that the cover is the only thing about the album that got any press because it was controversial. It is a bunch of uh, kind of Roman-looking statues, and they have uh, Roman-looking penises on them. Yeah. And uh, that was not okay when the U.S. release of this album came out. And so the under pressure from, I guess, the record company, uh, they uh, they kind of chipped off the wieners. Uh, yeah. And so on the American release, it's the Roman statues, four of them for the four members of the band with uh, chipped off wieners. Yes. <laughs> yes. The statues were of greek warriors ancient greek warriors I think. oh greek yeah called the karoi Kor- oh wow you did the research good good yep. job yeah the yes the american version has uh, stuff over the ding-dongs everywhere else people were able to survive the penises yes yes and it is sort of a perfect past prime metaphor the removing of the phallus <laughs> You know, so uh, it works for us. Uh, yeah, it's a str- it's a strange cover compared to other David Bowie covers. It, it, there's something the way he described it amid the controversy sounded both highly pretentious and also like a bunch of malarkey. Like yeah, sound- yeah, yeah. Okay, so how would you describe the general sound of this album? And maybe if you can, in comparison to the first, if you can even distinguish between the two, the first Hit Machine album. Yes, I can distinguish between the two. The first one is has a very consistent sound. It is a band, a very hard rock band uh, with kind of, I don't know, alternative flourishes, uh, a very kind of dynamic, squawky guitar player. This album wanders a lot stylistically. It's kind of different each track. It feels and sounds a little more like a Bowie solo project. Uh, a little less, I mean, even in the way the vocals are mixed, uh, it uh, uh, feels a little less like a band. The, the first album is so noisy, you know, uh, Bowie's kind of screaming under the din uh, uh, of the band. Uh, this album, you know, has uh, songs that really highlight his, you know, his crooning. Yeah, this one is a step closer to 
black tie, white noise. Yeah. Bowie's fingerprints are heavier. Whereas the first yeah. album, to your point, can sound like a really high end bar band where the guitarist got a cool pedal and accidentally David Bowie stepped in as lead singer. Right. Yeah. The first one's like a noisier blues album. This one, you could hear Bowie. The, the band has, uh, to some extent, found, figured out a little bit more of what they want to be. And, and Bowie is more heavy handed, at least on whatever it is, 10 of the 12 songs or 12 of the 14, because there are there are two songs. Yes. Where quizzically he hands the microphone over to the drummer or the, yeah. or the drummer steals the microphone. It's unclear. Yeah. yeah. Upsetting. <laughs> and both albums sound a great. They are great ways from tonight and let's dance let's dance in particular this is like this is a wholesale change this sounds nothing like that late that early 80s bowie this is really nodding towards early 90s uh the early 90s zeitgeist yeah yeah he 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 definitely saw he viewed himself as selling out in that era uh and he is deliberately trying to sort of forge away from the mainstream. And yeah. And also he had bottomed out, I think around 83, 84, the, the, the thin white Duke cocaine. Like I think that he, I think he did either get sober or at least off the yeah. cocaine. Is yeah, that's the story. right. Yeah. Okay. What are the best songs on the album? Uh, I would, the first song, baby universal, not, not bad. And kind of actually sounds like what, it it actually sounds like something. I mean, Bowie scholars would say he kind of returns to form uh, a few years later with this outside uh, album, and he kind of gets a little bit of his sort of space alien mojo back. Yeah, and it kind of sounds a bit like that, and it's it's using his space boy vocabulary, his uh, space persona. You know, talking about, you know, it's what it's a kind of a, a metaphor he keeps returning to and seems to capture whatever he is, whatever combination of kind of creative energy and vampirism. <laughs> yeah, he is uh, seems there's something about this, this space boy floating uh, in the universe that seems to work to sort of hold whatever David Bowie is. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think that. To whatever extent, this album predicts alternative rock and even what, you know, what they called electronica and that, mm -hmm. that moment around 93, 94 with like Fatboy Slim at the prodigy. I think that this this threads the needle between like the Pixies and sample based, you know, sort of more electronic alternative rock. And it's all it's a, it's a I think it's just a great song. I think it's I don't think there are any other almost indisputably great songs on the album. I think this is the one. Yeah, I would agree it's the best song. I, at the time, was fond of uh, Goodbye, Mr. Ed. Mm -hmm. uh, I find it a little embarrassing saying that because the whole song is this uh, talking horse, uh, you know, motif. I don't, it's all so silly. And what does it mean? It's very opaque, you know. Uh, but I, I sort of like the melody of it and it has a kind of, I don't know, wistful quality that I don't, at the time I bought, I, I think I may even put this on a mixtape I made, <laughs> but um, 
it 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 uh, it's feeling a little stranger now uh, going back to it. It comes at the end of the album, so it is another case of what you and I describe as sweet relief. Sweet you know, relief, where, yeah, yeah. When this is a fairly noisy album, and and Goodbye, Mr. Ed comes after the, the Hunt Sales song, so it is sweet relief. It is sweet relief. I may be. Uh, uh, affected by track order yeah uh, you know that you belong to rock and roll is uh that's okay it has a little of that let's dance era bowie in it it's it you know it, it has a, or china girl or you know there's a little of that swagger in it it's all right so i think the thing about tin machine mm-hmm. is that they often sound better or more interesting than the songs actually are. You know, there's a lot going on in these songs. Like yeah. the guitar tones are weird. Bowie is doing, like he, he's doing his high range, he's doing yeah. his low range. So there's something about when you first hear them that can be arresting. You're like, whoa, yes. what is that? It, it, like when you hear the Pixies for the first time, except for the fact that the Pixies had so many great songs and Tin Machine had like one great song. I think it also is related to how they dressed and looked. Yeah. Like there's a lot of smoke and a lot of smoke and mirrors. Yeah. 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 They seem to be searching for a vibe or a, Mm -hmm. uh, or they're searching. There's a lot, especially on this album, there's a lot of like, well, let's try this kind of island (laughs) Caribbean thing or, or, or this, you know, it was not Caribbean. It was, they're talking about a, that song, Amlapura, which is, I think, one of the worst songs, uh, is it, it, it sort of has a, it's going for, I don't know, kind of a, a kind of spacey nautical <laughs> vibe. Uh, yeah. it, and it, it just seems kind of like Club Med or something. I don't <laughs> well, well, you know, the funny thing is all, there's a bunch of photos of them in their tailored suits, but their shirts underneath are like Hawaiian Tommy Bahama shirts. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just hard to reconcile this, um, you know, this multi-millionaire... Svengali, who's assembled yeah. this band and is, you know, it looks a little bit too tan. Yeah. With too Duran like, Duran. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with like this slightly lower rent band of hired hands who he's trying to convince us are also band. all bands. There, there is like a uh, Tommy Bahama, like a club, <laughs> like a Club Med Pixies thing going on. Club Med Pixies, yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. What else did you like on this uh, so, before we go to the well i think one shot is an example of a song that when i hear it i'm like i'm like yeah. i like the sound of that guitar i like the sound of the drums and it never comes together like there's mm-hmm. there's there's never like a moment where i'm like this goes from interesting to great but it's a, it is a perfect example of a song where i'm like these separate parts yeah are almost almost something but one, sh- yeah, one shot did yeah. not blow you away. No, <laughs> one no. shot did not blow me away. Those no. are the lyrics to the song. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, I, I, if there is something, is the is the problematic one for me because the original, the Roxy Music original, is like one of my most favorite songs of all time. So to hear that song, it's like your my blood starts pumping. It activates something in me, and then honestly, I think that it is. A completely unnecessary cover. cover I don't yeah. think I don't think the band does anything to surpass. Certainly not to surpass. I just don't think they do enough. They're they're kind of like oddly loyal to the song. 
But it, the song is so, the original is so extraordinary and this cover is so unnecessary that it almost annoys me. So it's like one of those moments where it's like, oh, here's something familiar that I love. And then it's, then it's dispiriting because it's like, it's kind of a shitty cover. That's the, that was like the cusp song, which, where it's like clearly a great song. It's just mm-hmm. not a great performance. There are many like genuinely bad songs on the album, which are the biggest turds in your mind. Uh, the biggest turds, I don't think there's any argument uh, in this. It, it comes, the two songs, are these both sung by Hunt Sales? Or is one Hunt and one Tony? Or who? No, it's Hunt. Stateside and Sorry. Those yes. are both Hunt. Yes, both. Yeah. Well, that's tough deciding which is uh, <laughs> worse. I, I, earlier, I think I said that Stateside was worse, but I, I think Sorry is worse. It's so hard on sleeve and so unsuccessful. It's more embarrassing. Stateside is a, a bit of a bluesy thing that, I mean, the, I mean, the big issue here is the vocal is, is awful uh, yes. on both and something that shouldn't be professionally recorded. I mean, there, there's some limits. I mean, you know, there are limits to well, what should go on an album. You well, know, this, this is in terms the, these, of just basic pitch and, you yes. know, yeah. Well, these songs are the ultimate test of like, is this really the Four Musketeers? Like, and yeah, ap- apparently either it was or Hunt Sales was like terrifying enough to David Bowie where he was able to like wrestle the mic o- away from him. I mean, yeah, these sound nothing like <laughs> anything else on the album. <laughs> no. And to, yeah, to your point, stateside is like a uh, is like a Stevie Ray Vaughan outtake. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. and yeah. sorry sounds like like maybe something happened in the like the technical process where like a a, a Queen's <laughs> Rice song and like it sounds like if Brett Michaels from Poison was fronting Queen's Rice like <laughs> Queen's Rice Queen's Rice I don't even know how to pronounce it yeah. But it, it, it has nothing to do with Tin Machine, much less David Bowie. It's shocking. Yeah, yeah these, are, these are real outliers, and they're unpleasant and dead ends. I, you know, they may have ran out of ideas. I mean, uh, that's possible, possible explanation, that they just didn't have any more songs. And he's just trying to, like, give one to the drummer, give two to the drummer. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the entire the entire second side is fairly awful. Yeah. On, on the other hand, like, did the album need to be 13 songs? Like, I feel like there's a 10 song version of this album. We were like, OK, kind of like a B. B yeah. Minus, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think the Hunt Sales song are fodder for the shit machine argument. Yes, they are. They That's are. That's the shit in the machine. Yeah. I would never argue with that, that that is uh, that's real. That's some real shit there. <laughs> and it really is like, I mean, maybe it was helpful in a way. I mean, you can't, I don't know how, I mean, it must be hard to break up a band, I would think, but uh, you can't listen to that and go, this is worth exploring. You know, <laughs> no one would, no one would do that. No, no one in the producing the record company or the, you know, I think David Bowie, I mean, I think that was uh, an experiment if this could work as a band, and it can't. Well, except for the fact that he kept saying that he was going to return to Tin Machine, and he, you know, I, I think 
was it between the first and second album where he did the Sound and Vision tour, right? And then after this, Tin Machine did a world tour and they made a, a live album. They made Oy Vey Baby, which... Oy Vey Baby. <laughs> which I think was also in your cassette holder. I know I didn't have Oy Baby. You didn't have Oy Baby? No, Baby. I didn't have did... Oy Baby. Nor did I go to the tour, so... Oh, you didn't yeah. go? No. Oh. No. My point is, though, that Bowie was protesting that he was in this for the long haul. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, the next, I think, 92, 93, after he and Iman get married, uh, yeah. Yoko breaks up the band. Yeah. Well, I like to think he, he had a maybe a voice of reason in there. <laughs> yes, that's a fair point. You know, so, so maybe he just so, needed, I mean, he's single. Maybe he just needed some buds, you know? Yeah, that was my whole point. Yeah, My whole yeah. point was that he was a vampire without a host, and the host... The host yeah. he chose was Reeves Cabrals until yes. he met until he met Iman, and then he was like, oh, finally, yeah, like now get I have me a new host. Yeah, yeah, get me out of here. Yeah, so yeah, that's possible. That's where Tin Machine went. Where did Bowie go from here? Tell us, tell us about '90s Bowie. Uh, well, he, he uh, you know, he went on. To, we've mentioned the uh, he went on to Black Tie White Noise, which is a album that I did write about on on Past Prime, an album I really, really tried to like. Uh, that's uh, I think quite unsuccessful. A very like kind of experimental in a dull way <laughs> kind mm -hmm. of album. Mm -hmm. And uh, he got married to Iman, as you uh, covered. Um, I mean, he kept being restless. He got into uh, uh, techno, jungle. He kind of went that direction, hooked up with Trent Reznor. Uh, he did a song for the film uh, Seven, The Heart's Filthy Lesson, which is a very spooky, successfully kind of modern and young sounding uh, song. He made Outside, which has the Heart's Filthy Lesson on it and is a, I don't know, difficult, dense concept album. So he kind of yeah. went like really whole hog into um, his uh, non-commercial uh, side. And he, he kept kind of shifting and experimenting. Uh, he did in his uh, later career, he kind of more embraced his just like, performer entertainer role uh, at least in his concerts and he he played a lot of uh, you know his uh, um like he had a very uh contentious relationship with himself as like uh, a star and a celebrity and a pop star uh yeah. for a while uh and like when he did that sound and vision tour he said he was going to like retire all of those songs and like start anew uh, but he didn't do that. And he 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 ended up embracing himself as, a, you know, the long career of uh, uh, of of hits that he had. Yeah. And uh, but in terms of his albums, he never went for a stab at the mainstream again. They're all he yeah. hooked up with Tony Visconti again. He just kept going and rolling and collaborating all the way to uh, uh, all the way to his death with uh, Blackstar. Yeah. And then. I'm afraid of Americans is like Earthling yeah. '97. Is that Trent yeah. Reznor? Is that he and Reznor? Yeah, that's him and Reznor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, like that, that song. Yeah, I think that's like his last real mainstream hit. The album slowed down a lot in the 2000s, to your point, but he was a pretty reliable, you know, concert draw until he got sick. Yeah. Now, is this album 
prime, past prime or something else. The, the, we like to plot these albums on a spectrum. Prime being a, a middle-aged revelation or breakthrough, like Jonathan Richmond's I, Jonathan. Past prime being like REM's sad fart around the sun. Where is this on the prime to past prime spectrum? There'd definitely be a past prime. Definitely yeah. a past prime, a, a wienerless, <laughs> confused, yeah. wandering, searching album, searching for the new feeling. Yeah. You, you've lost that feeling, searching around restlessly for it. And, and dressing it up with Dave Armani suits and headless guitars. Yeah. That, that's almost like the platonic photo of a past prime band. Yeah. Know, it's, it's 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 Bowie's equivalent of of the bald mullet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what did you take away from this album for your own middle age? I mean, this is hard. We we have to come up with so many lessons about our, <laughs> about our middle age yeah, yeah. to come up with new lessons. Well, uh, I I feel like your your lesson is almost always the do same. the work. It's do always the work, do, yeah. do the work. Yeah, just like don't stop, keep working. Well, I guess I would stick with that, that sometimes you have to kind of just keep the body moving and <laughs> keep, keep moving until you find the next inspiration. Until something clicks, you have to keep kind of trying and throwing things together. I mean, that's, I guess, the lesson from this. I mean, I don't think he should have not made two albums <laughs> and just waited. Right. <laughs> you know, I don't, I think he's got to keep, throwing things together and uh and i do think you know in life you have to you have to not wait for things to happen you have to kind of even if it's not going to be perfect you have to move forward and maybe you grab the guy from staten island and put together a band yeah you're i think you're more optimistic normally in these than i am this is a case where my takeaway was that even our greatest heroes are are just men or women yes middle age comes for all of us and maybe don't fight it so hard. He, this, Tin Machine felt like a real fighting of the dying light kind of moment. Yeah. For Bowie. You think he should... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you think he should have just died. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I maybe just not fight it. I, when I... Yeah. When I hear Black Star, I hear a, a, a even though I don't like the album, it, it's there just seems to be more self acceptance. Yeah, this really feels like F- fighting to be young and relevant. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, he's you know, let the pixies have their moment. You know, yeah, you're, yeah. Let the okay. let the gr- let the grungers. And, and by the way, we didn't. I do think that the, the sound of this band has more than a little to do with the Seattle sound. I don't know if that was accidental or intentional but like it's this band at their best does sound like a grunge band yeah but predates it but predates it you're right yeah yeah absolutely absolutely yeah Yeah, that's the that's the one feather in the cap of uh tin machine too will you ever listen to this album again i know don't want to there's another version of baby universal if you want to hear that right i heard that that he kind of redid that he resurrected it i'll take that maybe yeah I will never listen to this album again. As for what we're doing next, Steve, mm-hmm. we're, we're, which we're recording literally the moment this podcast ends, 
Uh, and I, I know that your sphincter is clenching a little bit in anxiety and anxious anticipation. We're going to talk about television self-titled reunion album from 1992, uh, in part in homage to Tom Verlaine's recent passing, but mostly because it's going to allow us to return to a formative moment in our lives, the freshman year of our college experience. Uh, you're not looking forward to this, are you? Uh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> but no, I'm sure I am sure. It's always nice to talk with you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you. You're a generous friend. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, listeners. Uh, if you want to read the essays that inspired this podcast, please visit us at pastpri.me. That's P-A-S-T-P-R-I.me. And if you don't mind, rate, follow, review, whatever you're supposed to do uh, to this podcast on Apple or Spotify or the podcast provider of your choice. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.